I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the podcast, we go back in time and we resurface an episode, an early episode with Kim Whitler. She's an assistant professor at the Department of Marketing at Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia. Kim and I have known each other for years, and on this early podcast, we actually talk about some of the research that just now got published in the Journal of Marketing. And so in celebration of that, I wanted to resurface it. She does some great work researching firm performance and the impact of marketing experience on boards. And that's exactly what this new article, our new research paper is, is when and how board members with marketing experience facilitate firm growth. You know, she's found that only about 2.6% of firms actually have board members with marketing experience, which is sad, especially for us as marketers. But those that do actually outperform firms that don't and leads to a competitive advantage. So without further ado, here's an archived episode of Marketing Today. Today on the show, I have Kim Whitler. She's assistant professor of marketing at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. She regularly writes for Forbes and CMO.com on all sorts of marketing leadership topics. And prior to her academic career, she was CMO at David's Bridal and Beezer Homes. Her research now focuses on understanding how board and C-level roles and characteristics impact the company's marketing performance. 
Well, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you sitting down and talking to me today. Why don't we just launch in? I'm curious, based on the current research you've been doing around marketing performance and understanding how boards and C-level roles, how their decisions impact the company's marketing performance. Let's, I guess, first get a definition of what marketing performance is. So it's funny because you would think that that would be a simple question. What is marketing performance? How do you measure it? But in reality, it's actually a very complex answer. So from an academic standpoint, there's all sorts of different ways in which we measure marketing outcomes. So we have financial and accounting metrics, such as profit or ROA or TSR. We have product market-related outcomes such as innovation, so the number of patents a company might have, market share or revenue. And then we have marketing asset-related outcomes such as brand equity, customer satisfaction. And these are only a few. If you pick up academic journals, you'll see that there are a lot of different dependent variables or outcomes, performance-related outcomes that we look at in terms of how marketing might impact the firm. Now, what's interesting is you would say, well, maybe that's just academics and marketers are clearer about how they measure marketing. But in reality, if you look at the marketing metrics book, which was written by Paul Ferris, Neil Bendel, Dave Reebstein, there are four authors, I believe. In that book, they did a survey of practitioners and they asked them on the usefulness of different marketing metrics, marketing-related metrics. I think there are over 110 different metrics. And so the way in which you measure marketing will frankly be fairly dependent on the industry you work in and more specifically the company you work with, work in and how they actually measure marketing. Interesting. So it has to be tailored to your industry and it's very complex. I mean, just the 110 measures that you talked about. I'm curious if we take the organization and start at the board level, what have you learned about marketing experience on boards? How does that impact the company? One of the questions we sought to answer with our research is what is the unique contribution of marketers in the firm? So when you look at all of the different ways in which academics and marketers measure themselves, you know, for example, I was measured at one point, I was an officer in a firm, C-level, and I was measured on ROIC, return on invested capital. And at the point, I had no idea how our my department's unique contribution actually impacted ROIC more so than other functions, and yet I was measured on it. I was also measured on EPS, as was everybody else on the top management team, and yet I could not actually explain to you how our unique contribution, by the way, neither could IT or finance. Nobody on the top management team could basically give you an R-squared explanation on their function's unique contribution to EPS. But we were all held accountable for it because the CEO was held accountable for it. So part of our question was, if you look at boards, which today, post-SOX, they've been disproportionately populated by finance, accounting, legal-type folks, folks who are very focused inwardly on the firm, on the functioning of the firm, and frankly, more on monitoring roles, the question is, what could a marketer? if added to a board like that, contribute above and beyond all the other functions? Well, they all affect efficiency. They all affect profitability. But the unique contribution, we argue, of these 110 different metrics that are in the marketing metrics book, the unique contribution that marketers, we believe, will contribute at the board level is an understanding of how to generate demand 
given external conditions, internal competencies, the consumer, et cetera. That is their unique contribution. They do a better job of being outwardly focused, externally focused, market-oriented, and bringing insight about the consumer, the competition, and the market into the firm in a way to help shift strategy and resources to impact revenue growth. And in fact, that's what we show. So there's a paper that's been published in MSI where we demonstrate that marketers on the board help increase uh, firm performance, specifically revenue growth. Historically, marketers underrepresented on boards. Do you see that changing? You know, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of great historical data. I don't have data year by year. There are some reports that I've been able to pull up, and although they don't measure things the same way year after year, we get some anecdotal evidence that, in fact, marketers have been declining as a percentage of the board. And there's a couple of factors that have affected this. If you go back to the 90s, not every board had a finance, a CFO on it right? Somebody who had significant financial experience on the board. However, post-SOX, every board must now have it because of regulation. And so you went from not every board having a finance director and the average board size being around 13 back in the 80s and early 90s. And now the average board size is somewhere between 9 and 10. So at the same time that you've added accounting and finance folks, you've also reduced the size of the board. And so what we believe is happening is that some of the ancillary roles that were filled by people like a CHRO or a CMO or a professor or somebody from the government, so there are representatives who sit on boards, some of these kind of more nominally represented experiences have been the first, we believe, to go by the wayside as you bring on more and more and more finance, accounting, expertise onto the boards to be able to deal with all of the regulation. And so our argument, if you think about it, imagine if we took the top management team and we said no longer is every function going to be represented, we're going to skew the representation to finance and accounting and legal. How would that affect the management of the firm? And so we actually believe, and we're not saying that, you know, marketing is more important than finance. In fact, we actually believe that they're nice. It's kind of a nice teeter-totter, a nice counterbalance. But we think when you have a disproportionate number, a lot of finance and accounting-minded individuals, what you're lacking is that external knowledge, the consumer orientation, the market orientation, the insight about how to generate demand in a very competitive marketplace. That experience is missing from the board. And we believe those firms that are smart and tend to have a marketer on them, we can actually demonstrate, you look at... Um, post the financial collapse, those boards that had a marketer on them significantly outperformed their peers that did not. In terms of growth, let me be clear, in terms of growth, can be a competitive advantage. You know, a lot of times, a lot of the academic research on boards focuses on should the CEO and chair be the same person, you know, dual position, or should they be separate? How many independent board members should you have, et cetera, et cetera? Very little looks and how functional experience can impact the strategic direction, resource allocation of the firm. And so that's, that's really what our research has been looking at. And we do find strong evidence, compelling evidence, that, in fact, marketers on the board can have a positive impact on firm growth. I hope more companies adopt that just based on your research alone. What do you think CMOs need to be thinking about 
either in regards to their role or the organizations that they lead today based on the research you've been doing? So some of the other, you know, having been a CMO and now having uh, talked to over 300 individuals, CMOs, CEOs, et cetera, interviewed them, there's so much I wish I'd known uh, back when I was a CMO, in particular about how to find the right role for my competency. In fact, some of the ahas that I've learned through my research. First, CEOs are not experts at interviewing, hiring, designing roles for marketers. They don't do it very often, and they frankly don't have a great acumen on it. And that's exacerbated by the fact that according to the executive recruiters I've talked to, they believe that the CMO role is the most varied, the most diverse across all C-level roles. So if you go from industry to industry, company to company, as a CFO or a CIO, while it can vary, the amount of variance is less than what happens for marketers. So I've interviewed marketers, for example, one marketer who reported to a CIO. She was a CMO. She reported to the CIO, and all she did was help support IT. On the other end of the spectrum, I've interviewed CMOs who drive corporate strategy, who do a lot more than marketing communications, who've been in charge in leading product development, who are very involved in distribution, and who are the right-hand successor to the CEO. You know, in no other function do you have such a diverse range of roles, and by the way, also experience. So, unlike finance people who typically have a finance degree or accounting folks who have who pass their CPA exam many marketers we have marketers who are engineers and marketers who are journalists i mean you could have any background you could actually be a marketer and never have taken a course in marketing and so you have unbelievable variance in the training and the skill and the competency of people in marketing and unbelievable variance in the types of positions. And when you interact those two, it makes a very difficult job for a CEO to find the right person for the job that he or she wants to create in their firm. Then you add on top of that executive recruiters who frankly are not incented to find individuals who will last for five or 10 years. You know, the way that their compensation structure it works, as long as the individual lasts one year, then they get their compensation. So all they need is for somebody to make it a year, and, and most companies will give you a year at the C-level. And so they're not necessarily incented, per se, to find individuals who are going to succeed the CEO, et cetera. And, so, and then you look at the CMOs. And I can speak from experience. We're not experts at interviewing for positions, right? By the time I finished my career, I had finally kind of figured it out. But in the first few positions at the C-level, I wasn't asking the right questions. So what does all of this mean? What is it that CMOs need to do? They need to be much more adept at finding the right roles, the right company culture, the right environment, the right design so that they can succeed, and they need to be honest with themselves. So on the spectrum, and I'm going to go from staff to P&L management, on that kind of linear spectrum from deep marketing expertise, probably good at social media, digital, you know, marketing communications, to the other end of the spectrum where they're good at pricing, good at distribution, good at P&L management, you need to understand where you are and be honest with yourself about that, and then you need to find the roles that are looking for that. So without naming names, I interviewed an individual 
who has CPG training, who worked at a very large, just say, retail-like company, one of the top three in his industry. And he went from a P&L role to a CMO role. And I knew when I interviewed him, he wouldn't make it a year. And the reason is, is because he was used to having leadership over all of the different levers that drive the business. And he'd moved into a role where he didn't have that. And he thought that he would be the heir apparent to the CEO. Well, the problem is he had to succeed in the role that he was given. And so this is a case where it was a misfit. His experience base was not what the company, they thought that's what they wanted, but that's really not what they wanted. And so this is part of the challenge that CMOs have is ferreting out what the CEO really wants. And I have a couple of suggestions. One, ask for the org chart. All right. So I actually took a job at one point where I assumed that research managed or reported up to me. You would expect that the research group would report up to the CMO. And once I landed on the job, in fact, it didn't. So ask for the physical org chart. Don't take somebody's word on it. Ask to actually look at the org chart. Ask to look at the budget. Try to understand what the different buckets of money are. So for example, if you don't have digital in your budget, that can then be a question that you ask the CEO, help me understand who's managing digital. Oh, IT's managing digital, or you have some other function managing digital. Well, you expect X from me. You expect me to drive consumer satisfaction, growth. How can I do that if I don't manage digital, right? So part of the responsibility and onus for CMOs today is to really get in and make sure that they don't just listen to the CEO because the CEO more often than not and the job spec more often than not will tell you what you want to hear. What you really want to do is get into the specifics of the job, look at what your responsibility is, what your org chart looks like, who reports up to you and who doesn't, what's in your budget and what's not. Now, that at least gives you the basis to fully understand the job before you take it and to either negotiate a better role, to reject the role, or to accept it. But I think given that CEOs aren't expert at this, executive recruiters are not necessarily fully incented to care whether or not you stay four or five years or succeed. It's the onus is on CMOs to figure this out. And I know that that was kind of a long-winded explanation, but this is a complicated, the question is a complicated question. And I actually think it's one of the most important areas where CMOs can improve in order to do a better job, to have a better chance of success in the jobs that they take. Well, I think your suggestions are are great. And to be honest, it's one of those things, you know, taking the bull by the horns, we hear that phrase a lot. But here, it sounds like CMOs in general, because of the complexity of the role and the organization, they've really got to own the matchmaking for themselves. Now, let's assume I'm now a CMO and I'm in the role. How do I think about my marketing capabilities or organization that's now reporting to me? And how do I assess it or, or think about, is it a good one or do I have gaps? I think, frankly, the skill that marketers have start developing from a very young age. So if you're a brand assistant, you're trying to figure out what the consumer's needs are, and then you're trying to figure out how your brand delivers on those needs. What are the gaps? So same sort of things exist when it comes to internal marketing competencies. So part of it starts with what is your strategic plan? What is it that you hope to accomplish? And then you have to go through an assessment to see if you have the right structure and the right team to be able to achieve it. And that is a big issue. And it's oftentimes, unfortunately, not easy to change quickly. You do have a window when you take a new role. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You oftentimes have a window of time, the honeymoon, where you're able to make those changes more easily. You know, if you let a year or two go by and then you say, wait, I don't have the right structure, people will ask, why didn't you bring that up in the first six months? So I think it's it stems from your strategic plan and what it is you want to achieve. And then it's a decision as to what you want to insource versus outsource. Where do you want to hire experts outside of the firm, consultants, agencies, experts outside of the firm versus what do you want to have on your staff? And then it's a matter of, okay, do I have the right people in the right positions? If you go back to Jim Collins, do I have the, you know, the right people in the right positions on the bus to get it done? I know talent, in particular the CMOs that I talk to, it's a big issue. And it seems like maybe it's because of the complexity of the organizations they're running, like you described. It's on a spectrum of, I don't have true lieutenants or deputies, you know, i.e. mini CMOs or junior CMOs. So there's a management or leadership gap. And then in other cases, it's a more niche need, you know, digital, social. And so it's hard for me to get a read on. I don't know if you experienced that as well with all the folks that you've talked to. I think it really is hard. And frankly, it's even more challenging today. One of the things I started seeing right before I left practice to get a PhD is I started seeing a shift in, frankly, work ethic. So not only do you have to find people who have the right skills who have a great attitude, right? They're a positive contribution to the team. But I started finding that people had very high expectations. They wanted to make, you know, $180,000 a year, but they needed to leave at 3 p.m. to go do some endeavor. So I started seeing this, you know, frankly, this problem because I had individuals, for example, my administrative assistant who was working 40 hours a week or more, who was making a lot less than these individuals who didn't have that same kind of expectation that they would make a lot and not have to work as hard. And so, you know, we're seeing it right now with Paul Ryan. You know, he'll take the speakership job, but he's going to put mandates on when he will work and when he won't work. And while some of that is good, it can make trying to fill out a team where you need a lot of players who are pulling their fair share of the weight, it can make it challenging if you have a lot of variance and the degree of commitment to the project, the team, the company, et cetera. What I ended up doing toward the end of my career is I literally did five hours of interviews for any significant position. And the first set of interviews, the first two and a half, was to almost scare the candidates into understanding how difficult the job would be. Because I realized after I'd made a couple of very bad hiring calls, 
I wanted to get people who were up for the challenge, who were ready to work hard and who were ready to hit the ground running. And if people were focused on work-life balance, that wasn't, the company was at this time was, was having a lot of challenges. It was in a tough industry that was declining and I needed people who could pull. And so I, you know, I had a very tough two and a half hour interview that was focused on competency, but could they handle the culture? Could they handle the challenges in front of them? And in fact, one of my best employees ever halfway through that interview said, Kim, if you're trying to scare me, you can't scare me. So he knew exactly what I was doing and he came back and he said, I'm not scared. I'm open to the challenge. I want to learn. I love the fact that I'm going to be given a lot of responsibility and I'm ready for that. So he called me on basically what I was doing in the interview. The next two and a half hours was focused on personality fit, cultural fit, et cetera. And they would be held in different venues, separate locations. The second interview was typically over a lunch. And if they'd made it through the first round, then I softened up and I, then we could have more of a conversation. But I realized after making literally two very bad hires that I could not afford to do that again. Now that's what I did. You know, I think every CMO has to figure out their own way on this. I also put a lot more pressure on our recruiting partners to do a better job of vetting candidates, but this is a big deal. And it's, it costs the company a lot to find a candidate. And I just finally got to the point where I had to invest more of my own time because it was that important. You know, when you get somebody who has a great attitude, who's a tremendous leader, who steps into the gap, who has a great work ethic, who's dependable, who's reliable, who's a positive energy, who makes the team better, when you find that person, they are worth gold. Conversely, if you get the opposite, it is cancerous to a team. And so knowing how important critical players are on the team. I just felt like toward the end of my career, the variance was too great and I needed to jump in and be more hands-on than I had to be kind of earlier in the middle of my career. I love your five hours. That's a lot of time to spend with a candidate, but, but it's vital. Like you said, I mean, it's vital to get the right fit. When you have the great positive energy spirit, the people who raise their hand and the students who are ready to help their classmates and who are engaged in learning. And then you have the cynical, skeptical, constantly challenging everything. And not the challenge is bad, but kind of a general negativity. You see this everywhere. And the variance is tremendous. And I just found over time that I really prefer to find folks who are positive spirits, who are competent, who kind of have the right type of energy to make the team better, that they're big contributors, It's just, I finally felt like five hours was worth it for me because you know what? You're going to spend hundreds, if not thousands of hours with them. And so five hours is a low upfront cost to invest to make sure that frankly, they know what they're getting themselves into. That's the other thing. It's not fair to them to spend 30 minutes in an interview and think that they have enough information to be able to decide whether or not, you know, I'm a good fit for them or the company's a good fit for them. And so for both of us, I felt like It was only fair that I do more due diligence on my side to make sure that I have greater confidence in the hire. And frankly, for them, that before they say yes, that they have enough information to believe that this was a good fit for them as well. It's great advice to any candidate in marketing or any candidate for that matter, any job. What I want to do now, if it's okay with you, I want to step back from your research and let's get our crystal balls out. I love this part of the interview process (laughs) and think about the future. And, you know, I'm curious, as I'm sure many of the listeners are, what would you predict? You've got your pulse on business and academia 
and many other things, especially with the articles and content you're putting out with Forbes. What do you predict for the future of marketing? It's funny because I do so many interviews and I always ask the same question. So it's kind of <laughs> nice to be on the other side for once. So the first thing I'd say is I don't think it's a monolith. I think, you know, this is the biggest tent. Marketing is the biggest tent of all disciplines. You know, we have everybody from a media analyst or researcher who's a quant jock to creatives and artists to strategists to general managers, you know, and then to kind of functional experts who are social media experts or digital experts. As I always tell students, it does not matter what your skill is. If you love people, we have sales. If you hate people, we can put you in a room and you can do analysis. I mean, it doesn't matter what you're good at. There's a space for you in marketing. It also, as we started the conversation, marketing is such a confused term. So academics define it differently than practitioners do. This is such an academic answer, but it's always, it depends. It depends. And so I want to talk, though, about what it can be for those enlightened CEOs and those enlightened boards who understand that this can be a a huge competitive advantage when managed correctly. So the first thing I'd say, and this is based on my research, that I think in a more competitive world where the big get bigger, but they hit harder. And even in some ways, some of the small are faster, more are nimbler, are able to beat up on the big. Growth is more challenged. And we're seeing that in a lot of CEO surveys. So as growth becomes more challenged and difficult to attain, look at higher ed. What's going to happen in the future? Most likely higher ed, you're going to see schools go by the wayside and some of the big will get even bigger. And so in a world where growth is more challenged, marketing becomes more important because marketers are the engine for growth in the company. They're the ones who understand the consumer. They understand how to design to meet consumer needs, how that should affect product, service, et cetera. And so I think if used correctly, that one of the key elements will be that marketing will become more important to enlighten companies, not less important. Second thing is then this will be as it becomes even more important in industries where it's historically not been important. I'll talk about law firms. I did an interview with somebody where all of a sudden marketing is becoming more important in law firms, more important in B2B. It's becoming more important in tech, right? It's becoming more important in higher ed. It's always been important in CPG. And it's been important in retail for a long time and in banking and financial services for quite some time. But what you're seeing is all of these other industries where we've never thought about marketing mattering, it's all of a sudden becoming more important. And it's going to be something that can help distinguish better performing firms from worse performing firms. So I think it's a great time to go into marketing. I also think that the future will require that marketers attain different skills. So it was possible in the 80s and 90s for somebody to grow up in an advertising agency, which is a very small part of broad marketing, and to to obtain a position of CMO. I don't think that's going to be the case. It's actually dwindling, and that's not going to be the case very often in the future. I think you're going to see more people coming from consulting backgrounds with the ability to analyze data and convert analytical thinking into strategic plans. So I think consulting will become more important. I think CPG will continue to be important as a training ground for great marketers. And I think people who want to attain kind of a C-level position need to develop both their artistic side and understanding of the art and the science of marketing. So no longer can you be one or the other. And in some research that I did, it's interesting. 
the worst performing marketing companies are those where the CMOs are predominantly analytical, self-described wow. analytical without any creative skills. Now, this shocked me. I reran the numbers three times. Why is that? Here's my hypothesis. Anybody can tell you, go target this group and here's what they want. But you now need to convert that insight into information, messaging, products, services that change the consumer's mind and behavior. And that requires an artistic component. And so the people who are great scientists, great analysts, without having the balance on the creative side, without having a respect for how hard it is to change somebody's mind, now this is the ad agency side, they're deficient. And so in the future, those people who will win have strong foundational stat skills, math skills, analytical thinking skills, strategy skills. But that is necessary, not sufficient. They also have to have a respect for ad agencies, great creative, creative that changes minds, creative that moves consumers to behave differently. They need to understand both sides. So I think the job is becoming more challenging because it used to be that you could be one or the other. And I think to be great in the future, you're going to actually have to be ambidextrous on this one. And then the last thing I would say is that I think more CEOs will be coming from marketing. And a lot of that has to do with what I just mentioned. The fact that you have to be an analyst and a strategist and a tactician and a leader. You have to work with the outside constituencies, agencies, and internal peers to try to drive change within a firm. All of those skills are critical once you get to the CEO role. And so I do think you're starting to see more and more CEOs coming from marketing. And I think it's going to be a great training ground to launch into the CEO position from. I'm curious. I've asked this question as well to a number of folks. And always fun to get an answer from a marketer or former marketer. Are there companies that you watch or that you find interesting you think others should be paying attention to? Right now, I'm fascinated by brands that are turning themselves around. So I'll give you a couple of examples. I like Allen Edmonds. Allen Edmonds, it's a luxury, very premium, American-made shoe company. And they lost their way. They distributed their shoes, a lot of their shoes, either through their own stores or through retailers. And they listened to the retailers and not the consumers, and they changed their product. They went overseas. They changed their manufacturing. They did all sorts of things wrong. This is back in the early 2000s. And they got a new CEO who was, even though he was an iBanker, he sounds like a marketer. He has a market-oriented point of view. One of the first things he did was he asked the C-suite, what did the competitor's shoes feel like to wear? They didn't know. So he went out and he bought all the competitor's shoes and said, I want you to wear them for a week. Now I want you to wear our shoes for a week. I want you to talk to consumers. He went back to the basics to really understand what the company was about, what the loyal fans of the shoes loved about the company, and they fixed everything. They turned everything around. The company was not doing well, and they've had unbelievable growth since, since they went back to basics and really anchored the entire proposition on the heritage, the history, and the passion that was originally in the brand. Another example of this is Buick. I love what Buick's done, and it's a fabulous story to take a 100-plus-year-old brand, and they're able to, you know, in the U.S., it had basically died, and 
And in 2008-2009, when General Motors was going through bankruptcy, they had to decide what to do with all their brands. They jettisoned brands like Saturn, but they kept Buick. And in the U.S., people said, why in the world would they do it? Well, they did it because of the brand strength in China. But it doesn't matter. They then said, we've got to turn this brand around. Now, how do you turn around a brand that stands for your grandparents? And what they did was, I think, really impressive. They changed their service model. They changed their product. They change their advertising, and they have a measure called momentum that looks at kind of, it's a measure of brand strength. They were at roughly negative 16, and they brought it to neutral, and that wasn't enough. So they had improved it significantly, but then they said, we're still not changing consumers' minds, right? So they'd done all the analysis. They'd fixed the strategy. They'd fixed the product, but the advertising wasn't working hard enough for them. And one of the key insights they had was that the people were shocked. They said, this doesn't look like a Buick, which ironically, when the first time I saw one of the new Buicks, I thought that looks like a German car. That's an American car. I love cars. So I had to go test drive it just because it looks like a German car. And then they came out with an ad campaign that poked fun at the brand a little bit, but identified what consumers were feeling. And the whole impetus of the campaign was that consumers couldn't believe that that was a Buick. And, oh, by the way, then their momentum score went from zero to roughly positive 16, on par with Lincoln, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a tremendous story, frankly, about the science and the art side of fixing a brand. But it's not just turning around any brand. It's about turning around a 100-year-old brand that many thought was dead in the U.S., and they were able to resuscitate it. And I, so I love stories like that coach back in the 1990s. You know, they changed uh, their brand positioning. It's a fabulous story. So there's a lot of examples of that, but I like brands that kind of go in and realize that they have to fix something and dire straits and they're able to do it. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today and appreciate all your insights. And I'm sure all the listeners will as well. Thank you so much, Alan. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley. Social media support by Megan Woods. Art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. and You can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 